Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. heard a very loud explosion the, the glass shattered all over the car the cars around us the buildings all the glass just went down it was raining glass all over the city of beirut helicopters fought the fire from the air the military called in to help in the response on the ground the human cost is still emerging one hospital already so overwhelmed it's been forced to turn injured people away. Oh my God, did you see that? Incredible, incredible explosion in Beirut, Lebanon today. I don't think, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. I mean, that is right up there with, uh, with the horrific 9-11 attacks, just in the, the awesomeness of the site. And obviously when I say awesomeness, I don't mean, I should say fantastical, because I don't mean anything positive, but it was, it was horrific. At this point, um, it, it seems like there are certainly thousands injured, and officially the death count right now is under um, 100. I don't see how it doesn't skyrocket, but but we'll see. It was just incredible, and there's all sorts of um, speculation right now that it's uh, there was a fireworks factory or something was smuggled in. We don't know, and we're learning with social media, I and I'm doing the same thing. We're all learning now about what's going on in in uh, Beirut, in Lebanon overall, and what might have caused this and what might be coming next. But we're doing a quick study. And so I was uh, very fortunate today to get to talk to Jeffrey Feltman about what this might be, what this could mean, what the next steps could be, whether or not this is a game changer in Lebanon and internationally. And um, it's a great conversation. This guy knows his stuff, and let's get right into it. Jeffrey Feldman is the John C. Whitehead Visiting Fellow in International Diplomacy in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. Mr. Feldman, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. So, I mean, we all saw today, a couple of hours ago, a horrific 
blast in the port of Beirut. It, there's all sorts of information and disinformation coming in. I, 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 I do. You have a solid handle right now on on what may have happened? No, I don't have a solid. I don't have a solid handle on it. Um, and of course, there are lots of conspiracy theories floating around. Um, and in any case, it's absolutely horrific. Whatever the cause is, it is absolutely horrific. The, the level of destruction, the thousands of people injured by flying glass, those videos are shocking. Yeah, I don't think, I, I honestly think, and I don't mean to be grim here, but since the, the towers fell on 9-11, that, I've, that we've seen something so extraordinarily catastrophic. I mean, am I wrong? Well, I mean, Beirut has suffered, you know, scars over the over the centuries, and and of course, more recently, the 15 year civil war um, destroyed lots of the Beirut infrastructure, of course, and kill, and killed 100,000 Lebanese. And then there's the 2006 war between Hezbollah and Israel. There was there was a lot of destruction, particularly in the south, but not only in the south. Nothing compares to those pictures that we're seeing today. Nothing compares to the videos we're seeing today. It seems far, far worse than than any destruction Lebanon has experienced in its um, in its history so far. So we're coming up on the anniversary, I believe, of the car bombing which killed the Prime Minister Hariri. Um, but was that 15 years ago now? Uh, he was killed on February 14, 2005, Valentine's Day, 2005. So yes, 15. It's been 15 and a half years. And also, that was a uh, that was a bomb of some kind. The crater on that was. It was a bomb, and it also caused um, quite a bit of destruction in the immediate area. It was a, it was an enormous truck bomb, um, and of course, it it, it shook the policy. It, it not it not only shook Lebanese to the core that the strongest leader in the country had been had been murdered, but it shook Lebanese politics. It shook regional politics. It's what led the Syrian army to be forced to withdraw from Lebanon um, later that year. And some folks thought that uh, that uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, could have been culpable in that in that attack. Uh, we'll see what the, we'll see what the international um, the special tribunal for Lebanon says on Friday, um, since they will have spent more time than than the rest of us in, in studying the the background to this. But they did indict um, five individuals, one who was subsequently killed in the Syrian civil war. So four individuals are, are alive and indicted, and presumably in hiding. They were never turned over to the special tribunal, and they're all operatives of Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. And I think one would have to be pretty naive to think that Hezbollah would unilaterally murder the most important politician in Lebanon without having, if not just a green light, an explicit request from Damascus to do so. That just given the politics of Lebanon at the time, the politics of the region, Hariri's um, relationship with the with the West, I find it most improbable that Hezbollah would take this decision on its own to mur- to murder um, Hariri. Again, we don't know what the Special Tribunal for Lebanon is going to do. They're going to decide, conclude on Friday what they're going to announce. But I draw my own conclusions. Just you know, preliminary conclusions based on the fact that the people indicted are Hezbollah operatives. <laughs> and the, we don't. I mean, this this kind of attack, killing this many civilians. If, if this was an attack, killing this many civilians. I mean, that wouldn't be politically advantageous for anybody, would it be? No. And, and again, anything, you know, anything that we say today might be. Um, Overtaken by further by further information about the about these explosions today. My own theory at this point, 
as of today, based on what I know and talking to a lot of Lebanese, is that this probably was an accident and not an attack. Um, but it still reveals a lot about Lebanon that's quite negative. I mean, the ports, the ports, the airports, I mean, seaports and the airport are heavily dominated by Hezbollah. Hezbollah dominates these because Hezbollah, besides smuggling arms in from Iran via Syria, Hezbollah also has a lot of illicit economic activities. Hezbollah has no interest in transparency at the ports. They don't want to pay taxes. They don't want to pay their customs fees. So they don't want the transparency at the port. Um, At the same time, you have successive Lebanese governments um, who have basically ignored um, safety issues, quality of life issues. You know, you've, you've seen the, the stories from a few years ago about garbage piling up on the streets. I find all of this, therefore, to lead me to the theory being shared by others that this was an accident, that there was a warehouse that caught on fire that had something, you know, fireworks or some sort of explosive materials, and that that fire, um, the flames and the heat from that fire then set off that second explosion, the really devastating explosion, which, were, which according to what I'm hearing, were things like stored nitrates, that they'd stored nitrates um, you know, used for fertilizers and stuff at the port, and that these are what exploded. Well, if this, is, if this turns out to be true, even though that's a less sexy story than saying it's some sort of terrorist attack or an Israeli attack on a Hezbollah facility, it still reveals the rot that is in Lebanon. Why would you store for years on end explosives materials at the major port where, Leban- where Lebanon's food imports um, come in and that's next to the silos that hold Lebanon's grain reserves? Um, it is irresponsible, at best criminal at worst, even if, if this theory turns out to be true. So the theory that it was an accident may turn out to be true, but the accident was based on incompetence, criminality, lack of transparency over a number of years at the port. So, so Hezbollah is legitimately in the government and has repre- representation in the government. Is Hezbollah the de facto government? Um, Hezbollah is the, is the primary backer of the current government. And, of course, that leads to a problem, too, is how likely is it that this is going to truly address the issues of corruption and transparency that would be required to get out of the financial hole the government's in, when that would also reveal Hezbollah's illicit illicit economic activities. How credible would any government um, forensic examination in today's explosions be seen by those people who are suspicious of this government because of its ties to Hezbollah? Because its its political backing is is Hezbollah. So there's a a cascade of problems Mm -hmm. um, in Lebanon right now, and that this explosion, these these devastating explosions, just sort of reveal um, how complicated it's going to be for Lebanon to dig itself out of the financial, political, um, social hole that that was already in place even before the, the day's blast. It's interesting. My a friend of mine, along the lines of what you were saying, a friend of my, well, actually, actually my brother-in-law, he's got a friend in who uh, lives outside of Beirut, and he says, my friend says the talk among the people was that it was an Israeli attack, and the government is covering it up because they don't want to go to war, which kind of sounds like a, a Hezbollah party line, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't rule that out, but I find it, I find it, I find it 
less likely than, than, than simply the incompetence and lack of transparency of report operations. Um, but again, Israel has shown repeatedly that it will take action if it sees um, arms smuggling operations. So the, the, the theory is the theory that, that those that see Israel behind this, see Israeli fingerprints, say that Hezbollah was using the port for its arms smuggling and the Israelis therefore set off some kind of sabotage that, that, that started the explosion at the port. That's, that's the theory. Now, I, again, I could be proven wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. Because while Hezbollah does have dominance in the port, um, they've used that dominance to evade taxes, to evade customs on things like importing used cars to sell um, at, a pro- at, at their profit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe they've used the port for significant arms smuggling. Um, the, the port would be so obvious. You know, the port is relatively easy to be monitored. Um, you know, it's, in the, it's in the center of Beirut. You know, people um, can monitor what kind of trucks go in and out of that port. Um, I just don't think that Hezbollah would use something so obvious for, its, for the significant part of its arms smuggling. Again, perhaps I'll be proven wrong, but that's why I conclude that it's more likely that this is, that this is an example of disastrous um, lack of, of management and transparency on port operations, that this was an accident rather than an Israeli attack. Interesting. And, and maybe if, if only not to, I mean, not using it as arm smuggling, maybe if only not to jeopardize the car business that you were just talking about. Yeah, I mean, Hezbollah has its, has its fingers in all sorts of economic activities, and you know they have their own telecom network. They need to import things to keep their own infrastructure going, and uh, and I believe that their dominance in the port is based on those sorts of activities rather than their arms smuggling. Now there are those that say that the Israelis have done a better job in the, in recent years in in cutting off Hezbollah's ability to import to smuggle arms across the Syrian-Lebanese border. You know, the Iranian, the Iranian arms are flown to Damascus airport, um, and then Hezbollah smuggles them from Damascus um, into Lebanon across the, the mountainous Lebanese-Syrian border. And some people say, well, you know, Israel has cut off a lot of those smuggling routes, so now Hezbollah might be using the port more. Mm. You know, maybe. I, I mean, I don't, maybe. But again, I think the port is just too obvious um, for that to be the primary um the primary bit of infrastructure for Hezbollah's arms smuggling. Well, I would assume that there is that one of the things that feeds this uh, gangsterism that seems to be happening there is the fact that the uh, economy is tanked in uh, in Lebanon. One, how did that happen? Two, how bad is it? That's oh, terrible. the the um, the Lebanese the Lebanese lira, the Lebanese currency, has lost eighty percent of its value um, since well, in less than a year. You've got it was it was basically a middle income middle class society, and now you've got more than half of the country um, that's fallen into poverty, and you're having growing levels of food, of food insecurity. That one cannot overstate how bad um, the current situation is. And many of us who followed Lebanon over over a period of time have always had always marveled that this hadn't happened already. Um, you know, we used to joke that, Le- that, that Lebanon defies gravity. The economy should have crashed years ago, but somehow the Lebanese kept dancing along in the air, defying gravity. Hmm. So the, the way it, the way it worked was the the banks of Lebanon, the commercial banks of Lebanon, offered really high interest rates, and it attracted 
foreign capital. It attracted, it attracted foreign currency. You know, if you were Lebanese and you had dollars, you could put them in your local banks and get an incredible return on your, do- on your dollar um, deposits. And even some foreigners, even some foreign banks would deposit money in Lebanese banks because of the, the high rate of return of interest rates. And then the, and then the central bank would, would use money taken from the, you know, borrowed from the commercial banks, take, take currency from the commercial banks to fund government operations and, and, and imports. But, but the spending was higher than the, in, than the inflow of cash into these banks. Uh. Um, so in, in essence, it was, a, it, was a, it was almost like a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> um, and when the, revenues, when the revenues started flowing into the commercial banks last year, for, for a variety of reasons, people started getting nervous about the way things were going. There were less remittances from, from Lebanese working in the Gulf because the Gulf economies were slowing down because of the oil things, so they had less money to send back. There were all sorts of factors that stopped, that, that slowed that flow of dollars into the Lebanese commercial banks, um, then making a run on the banks, the people making a run on the banks, um, and that led to the, you know, the, 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 the crash. Um, now, the Lebanese government has put out an, an ambitious an ambitious plan for how you would address the the fiscal, economic, social um, crisis in which Lebanon finds itself. But it dep- but for this to have any success at all, at all, there has to be um, a, a program with the International Monetary Fund. The, there has to be an IMF program because the IMF program is the only thing that would give the international community the confidence that Lebanon is actually taking the steps that the Lebanese have often, the Lebanese government officials have often said they need to take, but never do. Um, and the, there were 18 rounds of talks um, earlier this summer between the current Lebanese government officials and the IMF, and there was no deal. The French foreign minister was recently in Lebanon, and France, is, of course, is a longtime supporter of Lebanon. France basically created Lebanon. Lebanon's 100th year anniversary is September 1st. Uh, my, uh, 2020 won't be a very happy anniversary this year, no. but, but the French feel a certain sense of responsibility and affection for Lebanon because of their role in, in cobbling together what was then called Greater Lebanon. So the French foreign minister was just in Lebanon for a three-day visit, and he, he talked about the government is passive, um, that what he saw was not encouraging. He, he said to the Lebanese, help us help you, damn it. These were not diplomatic words that, uh, that that would be typical of the way the French would talk about the Lebanese, uh, and it just shows the frustration the international community has that even in this severe crisis, the Lebanese government is not acting, is not taking the steps that were in their own reform plan, are not taking the steps that would unlock financial assistance via via the certification of an IMF program. And you think, well, why not? You know, why? It's so obvious they need to do something. Why are they not doing it? Well, too many of the political leaders, the sectarian leaders, the old warlords, and Hezbollah are still benefiting from the current system. Um, I, I'll use one example: um, fuel. Fuel for fuel for cars, fuel for electricity generation. The government of Lebanon buys fuel at you know world market prices in bulk, and they they bring it to you know, they bring it to Lebanon to send to the gas distributors and gas stations and to the uh, electricity plants for electricity generation. And it's subsidized and it's subsidized for the consumer. So the Lebanese are paying the Lebanese government using Lebanese resources, uh, meaning Lebanese taxes, Lebanese hard currency are buying fuel. Uh, 
They then subsidize it for the Lebanese consumer. So the Lebanese consumer, mm-hmm. whether rich or poor, is paying only a fraction of what his or her government paid for it. So you have smugglers that are connected with powerful um, political or militia leaders who buy in bulk the gasoline at the subsidized prices, smuggle it into Syria, and sell it to the, and sell it to the Syrian oh, government at a markup. It's still below the world market price, so the Syrian government um, is getting a deal. a deal, right? And then the then the then the then the arbitrage, the 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 the, the profit, you could say that the, that the smugglers turn over to their their respective warlords, um, is then used to pay for the patronage that keeps the political leaders, the warlords, on top of their particular constituency. <laughs> so right. it reinf- so that so far. The crisis is actually reinforcing the traditional leaders, Hezbollah, um, et cetera, through, through the use of price differentials and smuggling um, to gain cash. Now, eventually this, this will work because eventually the Lebanese won't, won't have any hard currency to buy the fuel. Right. Um, but so far, um, this, the system has been resilient um, if not reinforcing for the top leaders. It's it's just terrible. It's dreadful. It's interesting. We're talking to Jeffrey Feltman from Brookings Institute. Uh, it's It reminds me of a large-scale Cosa Nostra racket going on. Well, actually, many rackets going on, hearing what you say about these, these folks. is How popular is Hezbollah in the country to the citizenry? Well, I mean, Hezbollah has deep... Hezbollah has deep roots um, in the Shia community, um, and for that I blame the other Lebanese. Frankly, um, the you know I, I hate playing the sectarian card, and of course I'm not Lebanese, so mm-hmm. I, 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 my understanding of it is, is not as sophisticated as if, if I were Lebanese. But you know, but in general, the Shia um, were under were the underclass of Lebanon. You know, they were the peasants. They were less educated. They they were they were poorer, and they were looked down upon by the Sunni merchant class and the Christians, and so they were you know, they were the, they were the underclass. Um, they were the ones for for whom the, the the systemic racism was against in in Lebanon, hmm. um, and and they had a few feudal families who would you know dole out patronage and jobs, but they were reliant on these feudal families and, and were otherwise second class citizens. So then during Lebanese civil war, Iran comes in. Um, Iran has proven itself very able to um, work in chaos, as we've seen in Syria, as we've seen in Iraq, and they did it earlier in Lebanon. And and they create Hezbollah. And Hezbollah suddenly is giving a sense of purpose to these Shia who were long disdained by their fellow Lebanese. You know, why wouldn't right. they look to Iran for help when they had, or accept the Iranian help when they had been so disdained by the Sunni merchant class and the and Christians, and this is the for, early the early eighties for, for about, decades. This is about the in I'm the sorry? early nineteen eighties at this this point. Yeah, this is the, this is this is the early eighties. The horrible, you know, from us that really bloody history of Hezbollah when the embassies and Marine Corps barracks are being blown up. But but they also provided jobs, funding, mm. sense of purpose for people who'd been ignored and despised by the by their fellow citizens. So I, I think that the other Lebanese have a lot to answer for, for why Hezbollah was able to put such deep roots down um, in, the, in the South and the Shia communities. But I also would note that right now um, there is more 
public expression against Hezbollah than I've ever seen um, in the, I don't know, 20 years I've been following Lebanon, that there is a um, public pushback against the, the fact that Hezbollah insists on having a veto over anything the government does, but Hezbollah doesn't allow any transparency, any public oversight into what they do. You know, Hezbollah, can, Hezbollah um, never asked for parliamentary approval or any type of or any type of, of of government mandate to go fight for Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Hezbollah um, doesn't doesn't ask the Lebanese citizens, "Gee, do you think it's a good idea for us to infiltrate over the border in the into Israeli-controlled territory, even though that could spark a war as it did in 2006?" So there's no public accountability for Hezbollah, even though Hezbollah insists on on exercising veto over anything the government could do. And there's now a reaction against that. It's a public reaction against that. And I expect that this court explosions today will fuel some of this um, public reaction against Hezbollah. Because, again, I, I, I don't think it was a Hezbollah arms depot that, that blew up, but maybe I'll be proven wrong. But in any case, it is clear there was no tra- there's no transparency over what happens at the port, and Hezbollah was dominant at the port. That is so fascinating. Yeah, ba- ba- yeah, basically, Hezbollah insists on doing what everyone else does and having the right to say no to what everyone else does, but allows no visibility or transparency to what they do. That's interesting that this could be a turning point, possibly. That would be a nice silver lining to the catastrophe. Are there civil, li- civil liberties uh, for the citizens of Lebanon? I, I mean, Lebanon, Lebanon has a reputation as, as being you know, the most open um, Arab the most open Arab country, and they have a long and they have a long proud history of arts and culture and architecture, music, poetry, freedom of expression. There's somewhat of a crackdown now, um, but I I think that the I think that the um, reports of civil liberties um, having been snuffed out in Lebanon are premature. I hope that I hope that it never happens. Yes, there's been more of a pushback against against um, some of the freedom of, of assembly and freedom of speech that the Lebanese have long enjoyed compared to. Some of their some of their Arab neighbors, but there's still if you if you look at the Lebanese media, there still is a wide variety of views being expressed um, from one extreme to the to the other. And today, with the number of conspiracy theories being um, <laughs> being shared with about the port explosions, I think you can you can see you can have that reinforced that there still it, that there still are several liberties in Lebanon, even though this is this is something worth watching. Yeah, well, they certainly have Twitter over there, so um, that's uh, that's open communication because uh, we've seen those uh, horrific videos. Jeffrey Feltman, uh, he is the John C. Whitehead Visiting Fellow in International Diplomacy in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks for having me. So there we go. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, this is – it's uh, – it's um, Tuesday afternoon right now, and you're probably listening to this on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. We'll know more by the uh, by the hour. But that was what an incredible, incredible, horrific, catastrophic explosion that that was. And you know, let's let's hope that that, that somehow the the death count, the casualty rate is casualty rate. I'm so used to the COVID stuff is low or moderately low. You know, let's let's hope. Let's hope maybe someday that the uh, the people of Le- Lebanon can get their country back and um, and prosper. It's uh, that's a you if you like uh, chaos and uh, you know our streets 
obviously what's happening in Portland on our streets pales in comparison to to what's happening over there in other parts of the world. And we're very, very lucky and fortunate for that. And it should probably be taught in colleges that the United States is especially good place, but it's not. But anyway, I'm going to distance uh, get some distance between uh, you know that, that 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 heavy heavy discussion that we just had, and um, I want to hit a couple of things, other stuff that we've uh, the today's show. It's so funny because yesterday's show. Okay, let me start. A couple things. One this morning on Jerry Callahan. Um, there was so much technical stuff going wrong that I think it kind of threw me off kilter a little bit in the morning. I don't think I, I don't think I added much to today's show. I think it sucked, but but Jerry was good and Cullinan was good. But I did debug my um, <laughs> my machine. So between that and last night, that the sh- that podcast last night, which was a little bit heavy, you know, defending the the cops, I figured that I'd be light today. But then of course the Beirut exploded, makes it a little a little tough. But we'll end on a more optimistic note, right? As soon as we just dispatch with some idiocy, Maisie Hirano, who is the congressman from, uh, she's from Hawaii, I think. She's a psychotic person, in in my opinion. All of the things that we've been talking about the last month or so, and all of the things that you've seen with your own eyes in Antifa, in Portland, and in other groups, militant groups, related splinter groups to Black Lives Matter, just anarchists and nihilists and, you know, rich uh, middle-class people, kids LARPing and destroying things and attacking police. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of crime that's been deadly as well. So all of the stuff that you've seen, Antifa writes their name on stuff. They've got a flag. They've got all sorts of different Facebook sites. They're very, they're very organized, you know, in their locales. They don't hide from... What they are, they're happy to tell you that they're Antifa and they're thugs and they're they're revolutionaries in their own minds. Usually they're just wimps. But here's Maisie Bruno. This is why we've got a problem in this country. This is what she's telling you that we're seeing happening at night. President Trump has ignored factual evidence showing that white supremacists have hijacked peaceful protests to incite violence and stoke racial conflict, such as in Minneapolis. Great. That's great. That is a paid representative. And either she believes it, in which case she's a psychotic, or she's just trying to propagate BS to to for the sake of politics and to divide the country. We've talked about the great dividers to divide the country. And she's gaslighting you. Listening to this right now, you've seen what's going on in Portland. You've seen all the violence. You've seen the smashed areas, the smashed city block in Minneapolis. You've seen it with your own eyes. And she's gaslighting you, saying, no, 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 that's not what you think. That's not what you think. This crazy persuasion game that, and it's unbelievable that they even have can do it with a straight face. That said, sometimes the president doesn't help himself. This uh, interview with Axios, with Jonathan Swan, uh, was not good. I'm not surprised at all. Because Swan just targets, he paints the targets which are Trump's assertions that he's awesome at everything. So so Swan just targets those assertions. And Trump, because he's just a promoter, he can't back any of these huge assertions and claims up with facts and figures. But that's where the surgical uh, accuracy of a great reporter like Jonathan Th- Swan trips trips him up. Yeah, all over the country. Mr. President, the other day a reporter asked you about Ghislaine Maxwell. 
You said, quote, I just wish her well, frankly. I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach, but I wish her well, whatever it is. Mr. President, Ghislaine Maxwell has been arrested on allegations of child sex trafficking. Why would you wish such a well, person well? Well, I don't know that, but I do know that... She has. She's been arrested for that. Her you know that. friend or boyfriend... <laughs> you know that. Epstein. ...was either killed or committed suicide in jail. She's now in jail. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wish her well. I'd wish you well. I'd wish a lot of people well. Oh. Good luck. Let them prove somebody was guilty. I mean, you do know that oh, she's Oh, so you're guilty. saying you hope she doesn't die in jail. Is that what you mean by wish her well? Her boyfriend died in jail, and people are still trying to figure out how did it happen? Was it suicide? Was he killed? This is one of those situations where the president should not be just one of the guys at the bar talking about this stuff. Under the it's giving them a false sense right of security. Now, I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha- it is what it is. But that doesn't mean we aren't doing everything we can. It's under control as much as you can control it. This is a horrible <laughs> plague that beset us. And now this is... It's certainly a display of the president's his lack of skill set in this department of knowledge on these issues, of ability to articulate his points on these issues, of wishy-washy thinking on certain issues. This is a, a this is a a setting that, where he cannot win. So I don't think he should have been jumped in it anyway. That said, I don't think it changes any minds. People know who Trump is and what they're getting with with Donald Trump. In a lot of ways. People don't want the thoughtful, meticulous, sober thinker. You know, we had one of those for eight years before Trump. And his uh, administration was disastrous for the country and created huge divisions. In fact, most of my criticisms for Trump are that all too often he's way too much like Obama. So it's not the end of the day. But let's not do interviews where somebody's going to just knife you in, you know... Although, who knows? Who knows? Maybe it doesn't mean anything. You know, but hey, you go around calling yourself a very stable genius. You know, people are going to take shots at you. This one here. So, out of fairness, during the Obama administration, he had some good um, gaffes, and we were always happy to hit him on it. He he called Marine Corpsman, uh, Corpsman, you know, the 57 state stuff. Obama had his share of uh, gaffes as well. Here's one you'd want to see the president get right. Yosemites. Yes. When young Americans experience the breathtaking beauty of the Grand Canyon, when their eyes widen in amazement as old faithful bursts into the sky, when they gaze upon Yosemites, Yosemites, towering sequoias, their love of country grows stronger, and they know that every American has truly a duty to preserve this wondrous inheritance. (laughs) <laughs> and that's what they're doing. And <laughs> that's somebody else's fault. You got to spell it out there. It looks like Yosemites, right? Yosemites. So that is a classic gaffe, and the internet has been having fun with that today. And why not? Who cares? It's fine. So um, now to end on a an interesting note. If you don't subscribe to the commentary podcast, you probably should. I think you should. If you're interested in this stuff, these are... Uh, conservatives who write for Commentary Magazine. They're not Trump fans, but they're great thinkers. And today's show was just a masterful show. Uh, I'll I'll put a link to today's show in the show notes. But listen to this. This was an interesting thing. John Podhoritz, who runs the magazine, 
he uh, takes us through a Facebook experience he had today, and it gets you thinking. I want to read you guys something that uh, popped up in my memories on Facebook. If you guys are on Facebook, you know that every uh, day now they send you something that you posted on the day, on that date in previous uh, moments, you know, previous years. And this is what came up. For August 4th, 2016, quote, this is something I wrote, posted on Facebook. Most likely Trump is finished. National poll last night, 49-39 Clinton. State polls, New Hampshire 47-32, Michigan 41-32, Pennsylvania 49-38. If these numbers track at all with reality, Republicans will lose the House and Senate as well. Near extinction level event for GOP. Wake up, Trumpkins, you burn down the joint. <laughs> you remember that? You remember in 2016? That's what people were saying at this time in 2016. Pod Horitz goes on. So, uh, oddly enough, if you look at today's polling, uh, in the, so that, that was a poll that had Trump down by 10 on August 4th, 2016. And in the real clear politics average today... Uh, hold on. In the real clear politics average today, Biden is up 7.4. So, uh, Biden is arguably doing worse than, uh, Trump is doing better than he was in 2016 today, August 4th. Well, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? That's what I originally intended to talk about today and to kind of break that down is what are the ways that if he could, could he win? And I'm sorry, my phone's going off over there. And so I've been thinking about it. What if, what if, I mean, we're banking on the fact that there's these, that there are voters who are quiet, the silent majority out there who aren't answering pollsters, who don't have the yard signs, who don't want to be castigated and cast off uh, you know, the social media circles by angry liberals, which is now uh, um, uh, redundant. So, so it brings me back to something. I remember about seven months ago talking to a couple of Trump voting Republicans who had voted for him who said, you know, at this point... I'm sick of all the noise. I'm sick of all the noise. In other words, they wanted the temperature taken down in the country. Because it's been an anxious three years, has it not? It's been heightened stress. And you could say that it's the media that's caused it, or Trump, or both, and what it was in that. Well, you think about six months ago, and you want all that noise gone. Now it's now, and we've been through this pandemic our lives are changed. We're under house arrest, essentially. There's these weird squads of people who go around calling you out if you don't have the the right uh, the right affectation for the the virus. Your businesses are are have been uh, spiked. Unfortunately, the economy's been spiked. A lot of people, I know, I my financial situation has taken a shot. I'm sure yours has too, and. Life is different now than it was six months ago. 
in with the riots and people like Mizi Hirano saying that the these terrorists, uh, I mean, sorry, these rioters are are actually white supremacists. So there's all sorts of it's toxic out there right now. It's toxic out there. Is it possible that you look at the two candidates and you say, you know what? Instead of the candidate who could be essentially a Trojan horse for the same people who are causing the chaos in the streets and, you know, forcing us, uh, at least in the Northeast, you know, Democrats forcing us, and I include our governor of Massachusetts, uh, forcing our businesses to close and forcing us, you know, into our houses and all this stuff. I wish we could have the America of six months ago when, yeah, the president was a little crazy, but life was good. And the economy was through the roof, and my job was good, and we were expanding, and for the first time, people were realizing the American dreams, many of them, and our livelihoods were incredible. It's possible, in my opinion, that come election time, people could say, yeah, that's what I want. I want to just go back, and I won't watch uh, you know, Trump anymore, and uh, if it, if it uh, stresses me out, but just give me the life I had in February of 2020. Not what we're seeing, you know, this brochure for anarchy in the streets. They could be the influences, you you know, propagated by the influences around Joe Biden. Just give me February of 2020. That's the like, February. Sorry, my wife always pronounces the R. I think they should get rid of, rid of the R. It's like the appendix, you know. Which, how do they know it's useless, by the way? That's such total BS. We'll talk more about all that stuff tomorrow. Now, hey, thanks so much. Please leave a five-star review if you don't mind. Or, or it, I feel like a jerk asking for that, but everybody asks for that. So, I mean, I'm sorry. I, I feel dirty asking, but it's supposed to be a good thing. I'm not even sure. I appreciate you all listening. I hope you liked that interview today. Uh, thanks again. What is that fellow's name? The Brookings Institute guy. Jeffrey Feltman of the Brookings Institute. Great work, Tom. Nice and timely. All right, guys. See you later. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.